Hello and welcome to Stonebridge Community Church's online service. I am Pastor John, one of the pastors here at Stonebridge, and we are in the midst of Advent. We are looking at Matthew chapter 1, trying to see the unexpected aspects of that chapter so that we can start to expect what God will be doing in our lives. It is good that we are connected through technology or through whatever means we have to be connected through. Whether this is through the YouTube channel, through the podcast, we are glad that you are tuning in with us. And we hope that this is a good time of worship for you and the Holy Spirit reaches you where you are. So we'll have some announcements to let you know about our community. And then you'll hear the word of God preached. And then there will be two songs to guide you through worship. So know that we are glad you are connected with us. And may God bless you where you are. As I've said before, Advent is one of my favorite seasons, and I love the Advent candle lighting um, and the candles there. And just for the record, the issues with the lighter were my fault, not Tim and Randy's fault. That's on me, and I apologize to to both of you. Um, I thought I'd tested it, but apparently I didn't test it well enough. So I take the blame there. Um, But I love this season where we just look at the arrival of Jesus. We look at what God was doing in Jesus, what God will do in Jesus, and our hope is deepened. Our expectations are changed, and we're shaped and formed to be ready for all that God will do when Jesus returns and when Jesus enters into our lives now, today. So we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, the first half of the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, which is called the genealogy. And it's this list of names that is meant more than anything else to prepare us for Jesus. But what Matthew has done in this is put some unexpected clues and names and changes. Names that are unexpected that you wouldn't think should be there. So today we're looking at Matthew 1 verses 7 through 11. And I invite you to hear the word of God. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And please join with me in prayer. Lord, this morning we gather as your people to hear from you. We gather to come to the table and to experience your presence. We gather to lift our voices up to you. And we gather to have our hope deepened and our faith sustained. So Lord, speak to us now through the power of your Holy Spirit. Through your scriptures, let us hear your word. Let us know what we should expect from you. We thank you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this whole series, what we're doing is looking at the unexpected attributes of the genealogy in Matthew, but looking at them so that we can begin to expect God in our lives, 
So we can begin to expect Jesus returning to this world. And the unexpected part of Matthew's genealogy that we're looking at today is in this second section here of the genealogy. Matthew breaks the genealogy up into three different sections. In this second section, Matthew has changed the names of two kings. If you go and you look at the list of the kings in 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the two books that tell their stories, and you look at Matthew's list, you realize two names are different than what was there in the other parts of the Bible. This wasn't just an accident. This wasn't just a typo. Back in the ancient world, people didn't type things up and you wouldn't have simple mistakes, at least not too often, because these were handwritten manuscripts that cost a lot of money to produce. So over and over again, as people copied Matthew's gospel and wrote it down, they wrote down these two names which don't line up with what we see elsewhere in the Bible. Imagine this. To understand what's going on here, imagine if I were to start listing off the presidents of the United States in order. But then at some point, I threw in Martin Luther King Jr.'s name. All of you would know he wasn't actually a president. And you'd wonder, and you'd say, wait, what exactly is going on here? Why did he throw that name in there? And it would raise your curiosity. Would you wonder, was I just making a mistake? You would know that that's not true. It's obvious that we know that Martin Luther King wasn't ever a president. But there'd be another reason there, a message. That's what Matthew's doing here. He changes these names, not because he's trying to pull a fast one on anyone, not because he even expects his audience to think that those are actually the king's names. He changes those names because he's teaching the church a message about Jesus, about what God is doing in Jesus. This is meant to be something that would make the original readers and listeners of Matthew's gospel, it would be meant to raise their curiosity, maybe even to shock them a little bit, similar to the four women he included in the first part of the genealogy. These two kings having their names changed. It was meant to convey a message about what God was doing. First and foremost, Matthew's genealogy, like the rest of the gospel, teaches us about God. So the first of these changes that Matthew makes, he takes King Asa, which you look at first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, it's King Asa, and he changes Asa to Asaph. So the first question this arises up is, who is Asa? Who was this king? King Asa, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, by the way, but it's okay. Um, There might be one or two of you that are like, no, it's Asa, and you might be right. I don't know. But King Asa is how I'm going to say it. King Asa, he was a king who ruled for about 40 years. About 40 years he ruled over Judah, God's people. And for the most part, he was a righteous king. For about 38 of those 40 years, he did well. But towards the end, his reign didn't end well. The Bible tells us that he began to fade away. He began to place his hope and trust in things other than the God of the Bible, the God revealed to Israel and to Judah and revealed in the Bible. He lost his faith in God towards the end of 
his reign. So that's King Asa. Matthew changes the name to Asaph. Second question, who is Asaph? If you go and you read the Psalms, most of the Psalms will be attributed to David. But some of them, a few of them will be attributed to somebody named Asaph. And the Psalms of Asaph have a slightly different tone than some of the other Psalms. I have some of the quotes here from the Psalms of Asaph. Asaph says, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Mark this then, you who forget God, or I will tear you apart. This isn't Psalm 23, where we're in the shepherd and the grove and the, it's nice and streams and all that. It's a little different here. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Psalms of Asaph have a little more of judgment upon Israel than some of the other Psalms. So Matthew has taken a king who drifted away and he added a letter to the name to make it a psalmist who pronounces judgment on Israel. You can kind of see what Matthew might be getting at here. The next change that Matthew makes is to take King Amon and change his name to Amos. So who is Amon? Amon is a king who ruled over Judah for about two years. It was not a particularly memorable reign. If you know your kings of Judah, you know this. Um, Amon was an idolater all the way through the entire two years, and after two years, he was assassinated by his subjects. Not going in the Hall of Fame or anything for kings here. He was a king that was thoroughly corrupt, terrible at the job, to the point that his own subjects took his life. So we have two kings Matthew takes here, both of whom were known for not finishing faithfully. And Matthew adjusts their names to make a statement. So Amon becomes Amos. Who is Amos? Amos is a prophet. There's an entire book devoted to the prophet Amos. And Amos pronounces judgment yet again. Amos, some of his lines from his book, and I encourage you at some point, read the whole book. It's intense. It's an intense book where God is confronting the people of Israel. Amos quotes God as saying, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. I cannot stand your assemblies. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. And then Amos says, if 10 people are left in one house, they too will die. There's a, a word of judgment here. Now, when you look at the genealogy, Matthew has intentionally structured these into two, or sorry, three distinct sections. And as I said, this is the second one. What happens in these distinct sections is the first one, Israel is building up to King David. Israel is getting stronger. They are more faithful. And as they build up to King David, they are beginning to ascend. But in this second section, Israel is now descending down into exile. They are straying from God. Israel and Judah have strayed from God. The people of God are no longer honoring God anymore. This is the section of judgment. 
This is the cautionary tale section in Matthew's genealogy. The third section, it'll ascend back up to Jesus. But right here, we're in this descent. We're in this cautionary tale. And I think Matthew, by using Amos' name specifically, again, this is something that any of the early readers of this gospel, anyone listening to it being read, they would know who Amos was. They would know he wasn't a king. This would sing out to them. By using Amos, Matthew is making a pretty clear statement, I think. Because I'm going to read a couple more quotes from Amos here. And I think it makes clear what Amos' message actually was. Amos writes, they, referring to Israel and the rulers of Israel, they trample on the heads of the poor and deny justice to the oppressed. Amos also says, for I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in courts. The central message of the book of Amos is justice. From the moment Israel was given the law, from the moment they entered into the covenant relationship with God, they were tasked with caring for the poor and the oppressed. And while the kings strayed from God and committed idolatry, what they also did, what that idolatry led to, was ignoring the poor and the oppressed in their society and in their culture. That's what Amos indicts the kings for. That's what most of the prophets actually indict Israel or Judah for. Core to God's desires was that the poor and the oppressed are cared for. But the kings forgot that. The kings neglected that. And the result eventually, according to the prophets, was exile. Matthew is making sure that the church understands this cautionary tale. Because justice is central to God's desires for the world. Justice is a biblical value. Now, when I say justice, I really hesitate with that term. I just don't have a better one. Because it's one of those words that has become so used that it just gets its meaning beat, beaten out of it. And when I say justice, it could mean all sorts of different things to each one of us sitting in this room. So what I'm talking about is biblical justice. The Hebrew term is mishpat, which I always thought was kind of a fun-sounding word, mishpat. It sounds like mushpot, but mishpat is different than mushpot. It's not bad. In mishpat, when this idea of justice is lived out, it's like everything that is working in a human society is functioning well. Some have actually translated this term not as justice, but as proper administration, which is really clunky to me. Justice is a little snappier. But that's the idea here. It's that not only are the poor and the oppressed taken care of, it's that eventually there are no poor and oppressed because things are working as they are supposed to. Because human beings are interacting in the ways God intended. That is core to God's desire. It's all there through the Bible. If you want to take the Bible seriously, if you want to take Jesus seriously, having a concern for the poor and the oppressed, 
That's part of discipleship. Now, as I say that, some may feel uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. I think sometimes we can hear justice. We can hear conversations around justice and feel as though it's an indictment of us. Or if people are calling for justice in our nation, there can be a defensiveness as though we can't acknowledge any sort of injustice, any sort of weakness. Let me just say, you want to follow Jesus, you got to set that aside. You, you really do. Because the truth is, no society has ever been perfectly just. Because every single society, every nation, every town, every people group, every city, every state, is made up of human beings. And the moment we show up, we carry our sin into the ways we interact with one another, into the laws that we enact, sin is there and is present whenever human beings are present. So for us to acknowledge that in ways the nation we live in, whatever nation it might be, isn't perfectly just, is just stating a basic biblical fact. So we cannot shut down to that debate. We can't stop having those kinds of conversations about are we matching up with God's ideas of justice or not? We have to have those conversations as Christians. It's critical that we do. So if I'm talking about justice and you start feeling a little defensive, try to just set that aside and recognize we're just talking about what God makes clear to God's people. That we care for the poor and the oppressed. And we can have and we should have debates about how best to do that. But we can't just throw out that value. We can't just act as though God doesn't care about that when clearly in the Bible, God does care. There's others, though, in the church that I think love talking about justice. And not only that, they actually want it to be an indictment against specific people and against individuals. And they actually want to call out certain people that they believe are unjust. We have to temper that also. We have to recognize that there is humility here. That the person who would be calling out injustice is also a sinful human being who participates in a system of injustice as well. And that just calling it out, just talking about it, leaving it there, that doesn't actually do much. We have to recognize that the best way we can bring justice into this world is by helping the unjust to become just. And the best way that we do that is through modeling God's justice, through loving our neighbor, loving our enemy, by modeling what God cared about and living it out here in the community of the church. Because the truth is, we can call out injustice all the time. We are never going to achieve perfect justice, though. We as human beings can never live up to that ideal. We have to remember that and remain humble in the midst of whatever conversations we have about justice. And we have to remember that first and foremost, mercy is what is required of each and every one of us as Christians. Uh, a few months ago, I came across a quote that I thought, for me, it was a little clunky, but when I looked at the ideas, I thought that this quote really captured what God calls us to when it comes to justice. The, the writer, he says this, as deep as our commitment to justice may be, 
We cannot pursue justice by utterly destroying the unjust. Or rather, our only means of destroying the unjust is to make them just, enticing them into friendship with God by letting our witness of love be the instrument of God's grace. That idea to me is powerful. Is that even the people we would call unjust, even the people that we would call oppressors, our job is to invite them into friendship with God, to help them understand God's justice by letting them know who God is. And that may mean saying certain practices are not okay, but at the core of it has to be a love for each and every individual that God brings into our lives. And that has to frame our conversations. Humility has to be there. Here's the trick, though. As Christians, and as I said earlier, we can't let the fact that we'll never achieve perfect justice allow us to set the value of justice aside and to never talk about it. That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible calls us to. The Bible calls us to difficult conversations. The reason Matthew changed these names is to help us understand that this is what God demands of us. Dale Bruner, a New Testament scholar, somebody I've been relying on a lot in this sermon series. He says, Matthew changed Asa to Asaph and Amon to Amos to teach that God not only forgives, but demands. This is something God calls us to. This is part of following Jesus. But I would go a little bit farther than what Bruner says. While I think that quote is helpful because it frames what Matthew is doing here by changing the names of these kings for us. I would also remind each and every one of us that the overall purpose of the genealogy is to prepare us for Jesus. The people who would have been reading this, they would have been the generation after Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead. Matthew writing this, he's preparing them still for Jesus' return. And the deepest reminder with justice is we will not achieve it till Jesus comes again perfectly. And the only way to glimpse it now is by people throwing themselves at the mercy of Jesus, trying to follow Jesus as best as they can, and taking Jesus' words seriously. Remembering that Jesus was the one who said, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Remembering that that was a core value of Jesus. It is only through Jesus that justice will ever be achieved. And it's only through Jesus that any glimpse of God's justice will ever be achieved. So for us as Christians, we have to debate these things. We have to weigh out how to follow God best. But we always have to throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus, humbling ourselves and pointing to his example. That, I think, is the way towards justice. And for each and every one of us, this idea of justice, it can feel so weighty, it can feel so big, it is so politically fraught today in our culture, and our society. It can feel very, very overwhelming. But the way to begin the conversation is just follow Jesus. Look at what he said. Use that as your basis for how to actually live your life. Take his word seriously. And as you do so, as you prepare for Jesus' return, don't be surprised 
if what you care about begins to change. Don't be surprised if what you think is most important now, 10 years from now, you realize it's not as important to God's heart and what God cares about as you thought it was. The more you learn about Jesus, the more what you desire and what you care about changes to reflect God's will. So may we throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus. May we lift up God's value of justice. May we do so with humility. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the ways in which you make demands of us. You call us to not fall into the trap of Israel, to not neglect the poor and the oppressed. You call us to do whatever we can to help those who are in need. Help us as your church, Lord, to follow your example. Lord, challenge us, confront us, and help us to find ourselves in your mercy. We thank you, we praise you, it's in your name we pray. Amen.
Salvation Darkness rain. 